Good morning, everyone. Please grab a Bible and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The Bible reads, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Good morning. Please leave your Bibles open to Acts 2. That's where we'll be this morning. And pray for God's blessing on the reading and the preaching of His Word. God blessed Adam and Eve with two sons. And they named them Cain and Abel. Cain grew up to be a farmer and Abel grew up to be a shepherd. And one day, Cain offered God a sacrifice of the produce of his fields while Abel offered one of his flocks. God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but he rejected Cain's. And Cain became angry. And Genesis chapter 4 and verse 5 tells us that his face was downcast. But the Lord may, while the Lord rejected Cain's sacrifice, he didn't reject Cain. He spoke to Cain and he encouraged Cain to do what was right. And he assured him that if he does what is right, then he will be accepted. He also warned Cain that sin was crouching at the door and he urged him to master it. Later, Cain invited his brother to go to the fields with him. And there in the field, Cain killed his brother Abel. The Lord asked him, where is your brother Abel? And Cain's now famous reply was, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? In the end, God avenged Abel's death and drove Cain away. From this day, from that day to this, the question does not go away. Am I my brother's keeper? Do I have a responsibility for others around me? But when God gave Moses his law and his covenant, God gave a resounding yes. The Israelites were indeed to be their brother's keepers. There were to be no poor among them. They were provide, to provide for those who did not have life's necessities. And if you read the prophets, especially the prophet Amos, you will know that God sent his people in exile in part because they refused to be their brother's keepers. When Jesus came teaching, he gave a resounding yes to the question, am I to be my brother's keeper? His disciples are to love each other. His disciples are to be good Samaritans to those in need simply by giving mercy to those that are in need. 
The hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the sick, the prisoner, all have the face of Jesus. And heaven will be filled with those who reached out to help their brothers and sisters in need. The Apostle Paul answered the question, Am I my brother's keeper? with a resounding yes. Over and over in his letters, he reminds Christians about their duties to each other. Love one another. Pray for one another. Comfort and encourage one another. Bear one another's burdens. James said that being our brother's keeper was pure and undefiled religion. And it is against this background of Scripture, this overwhelming background, that I, I want us to consider this morning how the early church answered the question, am I to be my brother's keeper? In the hope that in our life together we will give an answer that will please God. So we want to begin in Acts 2, 42 to 47. We begin in the earliest days of the church. This is in the first days after Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has been poured out as Jesus promised. Peter has proclaimed the first gospel sermon. People's hearts were convicted. 3,000 have been baptized and added to the church. And it is a great day. It is a great time. God is doing something new. He has a new people. He has a faithful people. A people that he has saved through his son. And as we heard in our reading, the church devoted itself to four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And they devoted themselves to prayer. The early church was a worshiping church, a worshiping group of people. The apostles were faithful to their charge to preach the gospel. And people all around were in awe of the wonders and the signs that God was doing through the apostles. It's loose concern to stress that there was unity among these first Christians. They were together. And not simply together, but he says they were of one mind. And they had everything in common. Luke is telling us that in the early church, they were not a group of isolated individuals whose first concern and last concern was for themselves. When someone was in need, that need was provided for by members who took care of it by selling their possessions and making the money available to take care of brothers and sisters. According to Luke, they didn't wait for Sundays and Wednesdays to get together. They couldn't wait that long to be together. And so he tells us that every day they met at the temple and spent time together in the courtyards and the porches of the temple. They welcomed each other into their homes. They shared food together. And there was joy in those gatherings and in those meals. And the people who were around them couldn't help but notice their life together. And Luke says that the favor of the people, the grace of the people, was with them. And so day by day, people heard the gospel and obeyed it. And day by day, God added the saved to their number. We have two misunderstandings about this passage. One I want to mention now, and the other we'll take up at the end of the lesson. But one misunderstanding we have is in our thinking about what is going on, what these people were doing. 
I guess our idea is, our way of thinking of it is that these are just cartoons. Or at best, maybe these are actors on a stage performing a play or something. But when we read this, we need to remember that this is talking about real people. This is talking about people like me and you. Not actors, not cartoon characters. These are people that had parents. These are people that had children. These are people who had aunts and uncles. Cousins and neighbors and friends just like we do. Some of them had businesses and others of them had jobs. They belonged to synagogues and, and other organizations. They traveled. They took care of sick kids. They had times in their life when everything went well and they had times in their life when things went pretty bad. Just like us. And just like us, their lives were full of demands. And when we read this against what their lives were really like, we, we get an overwhelming picture of what the early church was like. What a wonderful life they had together. How close they were. How they supported each other. How they helped each other. And so the answer of the early church to the question, am I my brother's keeper, was a wonderful answer. As they shared a common life in Christ Jesus. The early church would say to us, yes, we are our brother's keepers. Well, time goes on. The gospel continues to be preached. Conflict begins with the Jewish authorities. But one of the things that Luke is so concerned to say is that at every point, at every crisis point, the church continued to move forward and continued to grow. At the end of chapter 4, we come to another summary section, just like the one at the end of chapter 2, although this one has a slight difference of emphasis. It starts out in verse 32 with Luke stressing the unity of the church. He wrote, Now the company of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, Luke is not saying that everyone marched in lockstep. He's not saying that, that everybody thought exactly the same or that no one thought for themselves. He's simply saying in verse 32 that the Christians of the Jerusalem church were committed to God, were committed to the gospel, and they were committed to each other. And they had those commitments in practical, down-to-earth, day-to-day ways. They loved each other. And the unity that they enjoyed was enhanced by the attitude that they had toward their possessions. Luke is saying there wasn't an attitude in the church that I ha what I have is mine and nobody else's. They didn't think of their possessions as things that they had to hang on to that they couldn't part with. Rather, they saw them as things that could be shared with others who might be in need. And so the gospel continued to be preached. The church continued 
its life together. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, verse 33. And Luke adds at the end of verse 33, great grace was with them all. That's a little interesting to figure out exactly what Paul means, or Luke means when he says great grace was with them all. He may mean what he means in chapter 2 and verse 47, but as the community saw what was going on, they just had great favor for the church and for the life that they saw. And that's possible. That may be what Luke intended. But I think it's more likely that Luke is saying that there was a great outpouring of God's grace on the early church. And that grace was motivating their love for each other, was motivating their service to each other. It was motivating their life together. The gospel was being received by all kinds of people from people from all kinds of backgrounds. Notice what Luke says about them at the beginning of verse 34. He says there was not a needy person among them. When somebody was hungry, they were fed. When somebody needed clothing, they were clothed. When somebody needed shelter, they were provided with shelter. So much so that there weren't any needy people because brothers and sisters in Christ took care of each other. You see, they were serious about being their brother and sister's keepers. Now, we might think that they committed a large percentage of their offering to benevolence. But if you look down their budget, there would be a line that said benevolence and it would be a sizable portion of the overall budget. And that the deacons must have been very busy raising money for benevolence. But Luke paints a far, far more personal picture of what was going on than that. Look at the second part of verse 34. For as many as were possessors of lands or homes sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and distribution was made to each other as any had need. Now, Luke is not saying here that when somebody was baptized and became a member of the church, they went and found a realtor and sold all their property, cashed in all their stocks and bonds, brought all their jewels and all their money and handed them over to the apostle. That's not what Luke says. That's not what was going on. Nor is he saying that there was some kind of apostolic prohibition to owning property. There's nothing here in chapter 2 or anywhere else in Acts that makes it shameful to own property. Nor does there seem to have been a requirement that everyone turn over their wages and, and income to the apostles daily so that that money could be evenly distributed among the membership. That's not there at all. Luke is saying that when needs arose, and they did, those who had property voluntarily sold it. They, they raised the money that was necessary to take care of the problem. They gave it to the apostles and, and the apostles took care of it. There was a conviction in the early church that people are more valuable than property. And they saw it their responsibility to be their brothers and sisters keepers. 
The section closes with two illustrations of what Luke was describing. The first one involves a brother. His given name was Joseph, but the apostles called him Barney. Actually, they called him Barnabas. That was supposed to be a joke, but Stuart's the only one that got it. Don't pick on Stuart anymore. Barnabas means son of compassion, or son of encouragement, or son of exhortation. And what he was known for was caring about his brothers and sisters. And like others, when the need arose, he owned property and he sold it and he provided the funds so that those needs could be met. But then at the beginning of chapter 5, there's a negative example. And of course, that's Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira were not their brother and sister's keepers. They were Ananias and Sapphira's keepers. And we need to read that that way in this context. They owned property. They knew there were needs, and they went out and sold it. And they too gave proceeds of it to the apostles, but they lied. They lied about how much they got for their property. You see, they wanted to have the reputation of a Barnabas, and they wanted to keep their money too. They could have given whatever they wanted. Nobody was checking up to find out how much they got for the property that they sold. And even if it had been common knowledge how much they got, nobody was expecting that, that all of the money would be turned over. But they lied. And God punished them severely for it. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. When we read Acts 2, 42 to 47, and chapter 4, verse 32 to 37, we need to appreciate what Luke is doing for us. He is summarizing a period of time in which a number of activities took place in the life of the church. And it attests to the truthfulness of the record that he doesn't hide bad things. He doesn't cover up the troubles that they had. And they had troubles. Things did not always go smoothly. And Luke tells us about these. But Luke does emphasize what was best about those early days in the church. And he holds up these two pictures, Acts 2 and verse 4, to the church of his day. Perhaps as much as a full generation after these events. And he is saying to the church of his day, this is what the church was like back then. This is what the church was like when it first got started. And he is also saying, this is what the church should be like today. Out of all the purposes of the book of Acts, there is a purpose of holding up example and model so that the church that reads that later will know how to conduct itself. And when we read this 2,000 years later, we should understand that God is still saying to us, this is what the church is like. This is what the life of the church is is about. And we are to be like them, our brother's keepers. I'm convinced that an even larger misunderstanding enters at this point. And the problem arises, and I, I'm not trying to judge anybody 
as I've said on other occasions, my name is the only one on these sermon notes. But I think the problem is that we just don't like these pictures. I taught Bible class and listened to brethren react to these scenes with hostility and proceed to give all of the arguments why that's back then and it doesn't apply to today. We're good at making arguments about things like this. God doesn't want us to do it today. It doesn't apply to us. But the example is clear. We accept other things in these passages as examples we're supposed to follow. So isn't it, doesn't it follow that we will also follow these examples as well? I think the problem is that what those first Christians did hit us where it hurts, in our wallets. It offends our red, white, and blue attitude toward wealth and property. I'm no communist. I work a hard-working American. I pay my own way, and well, everybody else can do the same. Well, Luke never said this was Christian communism, although that's fairly often what he's charged with. And people who make that charge either don't know what Christianity is or they don't know what communism is or both. But he never said this was communism. He never said that the early church required this action of anybody. He never said that they actually physically pooled everything that they had. Never said that they turned everything to cash and gave it to the apostles. All Luke says is that they were their brother's keepers. They were concerned about their brothers and sisters in Christ. And when they were in need, they wanted to meet those needs. And the only way they had to do it was to sell things that they had and raise the money and take care of that. Brothers and sisters in Christ matter more than money, more than houses, more than property. And the members of the early church felt a personal responsibility to do what they could to help. Sometimes we slip into a way of thinking that says, well, you know, the only thing to do is just throw money at it. But as I read these passages and what Paul said about it and, and what Jesus said about it and, and what Moses said about it, I, I don't think that money is the main point at all. The issue is, are we our brothers or sisters helpers, keepers? In our life together, we do have some members who have needs that can be taken care of with money. But we also have brothers and sisters who have needs that money can't help. We have some who are lonely and need to be visited. We have some that no longer drive very well and sometimes need nothing more than a ride to a doctor or the store or whatever. Some of us face health concerns and the need is not for money, but the need is for somebody to care, somebody to say a prayer, somebody to help. We have children and adults who need to be taught. There aren't enough teachers or substitutes or helpers. And I'm afraid that some of us sit here, who sit here, always kind of seem to be on the margin. And my question is, are they on the margin because of our life together because that's where they want to be? Or are they there because we haven't really welcomed them? We really haven't found a way 
to make sure that they were welcome. We are so busy with our lives, with our families, with our problems, that we're hard-pressed to find time for anything else. It's difficult to find time for one more thing. But we have a responsibility for each other, and the responsibility doesn't go away. Being our brother's keeper as a congregation would be much easier if more of us were brother's keepers. The love that we are called to is not about warm, fuzzy feelings, although that's an important part, but it is about caring, and it is about helping, even when that requires sacrifice. And we have this responsibility to each other because of the blood of Christ, which flows in all of us and makes us family. We are more family, we are more closely related to one another than anybody is by, ever is by physical birth or physical flesh and blood. We want to go to heaven, but we can't get there on our own. It takes help from God. And so often that help from God comes to us through our brothers and through our sisters in Christ. We are our brother's keepers. We are our sister's keepers. And someday we will answer to our Father for how well we kept each other. How well we hung on to each other. How well we met each other's needs. Some time ago, Sharon came across a story that, that may be familiar to you because it happened close to here. But it seems a few years ago there was an Air Force chaplain who took part in an NSA Armed Forces Week 5K run at Fort Meade. I don't know if this will ring a bell or not. After the start, when the crowd of runners thinned out, he saw a group of eight or so Marines running together. And they were ahead of him. And he began to think to himself, wouldn't that just be great if I could beat those Marines across the finish line? So he takes off. He's going to beat these eight Marines to the finish line. But it wasn't long until he grudgingly had to recognize that those Marines were getting younger and stronger as the race went on. And that he was getting older and weaker. And he just finally had to resign himself to the fact that he wasn't going to beat them. But a hundred yards from the finish line, something strange happened. It seems that one of the Marines was in some kind of trouble. He was having some kind of physical problem, some kind of physical difficulty, and he, there was no way that he was going to make it to the finish line. But as the chaplain watched, the other Marines slowed down and did a U-turn and went back to their friend, and they surrounded him. And they helped him, and they encouraged him, and they stayed with him until all eight of them could cross the line together. At the end of the race, the chaplain murmured a prayer, and his prayer was, God, I'm glad those guys are on our side. I think that's a pretty good picture of what it means to be a brother's keeper. Some of us are strong and healthy in body and spirit, and God has been good to us in so many other ways. And for others of us, life is a struggle in a variety of ways. Some of us are in trouble and there's danger that we may not make it to the finish line. Are we on each other's side? Will we slow down and run with them? 
to help him get to the race. The Apostle John asked it this way, if anyone sees his brother and sister in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Let us not love with words and tongue, but with actions and in truth. 1 John 3, 17 to 18. Let's be on each other's side. Let's run together. Hold each other up. Help each other to make it to the finish line. Now maybe you're thinking, wow, I, I didn't really need a guilt trip this morning. And I didn't plan to give anybody a guilt trip this morning. But I want to say, don't ever think for a single solitary moment that the help you give a brother or sister in some way is small or trivial or unimportant. And don't ever get tired of helping your brothers and sisters because when we serve them, when we serve each other, when we're their keepers, not only do they benefit from the help that we can give, but it pleases our Heavenly Father to see us loving and supporting each other and he is not forgetful. He remembers our service. Helping somebody move, helping somebody with yard work, with meals or calls or cards or, or visits or transportation, welcoming the stranger, making them feel at home, those are acts of love. They're acts of love that make a difference eternally. They make a difference to those that receive them and they draw us closer together. And when we serve others, God blesses us and encourages us. I love what the Apostle Paul told the Thessalonians, and I hope in our life together he would want to say it to us. He tells the Thessalonians in chapter 4 of the first letter that nobody needs to tell, teach them about loving each other. They, they'd had all the lessons in loving each other that they needed to have. And so he says, just keep on doing it more and more. And I hope in our life together and in our love for each other, as it takes on practical expression, that we will just continue to do it more and more. That it will be a hallmark of who we are as a congregation. That we are our brother's keepers. That we are our sister's keepers. One way we keep each other is praying for each other. And there may be a brother or sister here this morning that has some need in their life, and we would love to go to the Father with you and to pray about it. And then if there's some other way we can be of service, we'd like to know that too. So won't you come while we stand and sing?